Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Staff Sergeant Leroy Petrie. Petrie was the weapons squad leader with Delta Company, 2nd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, and the time we're going to talk about is during his service in May of 2008 in Paktia Province, Afghanistan. So Paktia Province is in the you know, southeastern portion of Afghanistan, south of Kabul, a little east, northeast of Kandahar, and it shares a border with Pakistan, which really since the U.S. involvement in 2001, that has meant there's going to be an increased level of enemy activity just because... Taliban, al-Qaeda, any forces um, in conflict with the Afghan government can move back and forth between Pakistan and Afghanistan pretty easily. So one of the methods that the United States and NATO has used throughout the war in Afghanistan has been the raid. Now, raids are often targeting high-value targets, one individual or a, a small group of individuals, scattered around the country. The idea being that we're not, you know, this isn't World War One where there's set trenches and we know exactly where the enemy is or exactly where their headquarters is. These people are going to be scattered all across the battlefield. So if we can, you know, like a scalpel, insert a small team or small unit, doesn't, you know, a platoon or even a company-sized element into an area to kill or capture leadership and then pull them back out, it can be useful to the overall war effort. And it's not, it's not a strategy in of itself, if you will. It ties into the bigger picture. So one of the challenges in Afghanistan has been if you go after, say, the Taliban leader in Zari district in Kandahar and, and a special operations raid kills him, it might throw the group off for a period of time. The local fighters might be a little disorganized. But before long, just like any organization, a new leader is going to step in and, you know, maybe it's a week later and NATO special operations is going to have a new target because now that there's somebody else is the leader of the Taliban and Zari district of Kandahar province. So it's in the one sense, whack-a-mole. There's always going to be more targets. We're never going to run out of, as, as long as the Taliban are a threat, NATO and the Afghan forces are never going to run out of targets. But it does throw the enemy off their game for a period of time. And so it doesn't, maybe it doesn't hurt, I guess is the way to say it. You may as well. And you never know which one of those you're going to hit. And an organization is going to start to crumble. Every so often, one of these leaders might really be the force that's holding a group together. But you're not going to know until you continually target every one of the leaders you can at the highest level and kind of work your way down. So... With, never, with a never-ending target set, really, you end up asking a lot of, of some of these units that are capable of conducting these raids. Now, throughout the war, plenty of units have done this type of mission. You've had very, very select, you know, top-tier special operations forces, all the way to conventional Army Marine units that, that conduct raids to kill or capture high-value targets. Some units are better equipped and better trained to do that. One of those is the Army's 75th Ranger Regiment. This is the Army's premier direct action raid force. 
And they, at the platoon and company level, are just tailor fit for this type of mission of identifying a high value target or a few, being inserted in the dead of night, fighting to kill or capture the target and bring him back for interrogation, getting some rest and doing it again. Now, the tempo to do this is incredible. Remember, we're talking about a never-ending target set. The, the guy they kill tonight is going to be replaced in 48 hours, maybe less. So the ask of some of these units is going to be near nightly missions. Almost every 24 hours, there's going to be stretches of time throughout the war, I should say. There's stretches of time throughout the war where units are going to be going on a new incredibly dangerous, incredibly risky mission almost every night. Think of the physical toll, the physical, the mental, the emotional toll that would take on you to just time and time again, load the help, check your gear, make that call home, maybe send that letter home because you, because you don't know, load that helicopter, take off to the target. And when you offload the bird, you know, you, you can have the best imagery in the world and the best assets overhead in the world, but you don't know where the IEDs are. You don't know if you're going to be getting shot at when you get off the helicopter. You don't know if there's a suicide bomber in the building. Just, just do that once. There are units and people in the military that were doing that every day, once a day. Now, you know, you can, you can contrast that with the stance of maybe the conventional military throughout our time in Iraq and Afghanistan, where it's a totally different, in a lot of ways, a different mission where they might have a territory they're responsible for around maybe an outpost. And the conventional unit might not have all the aircraft overhead watching their every move. It might not have all of the, 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 the newest technology at their fingertips, but they at least have a, maybe an understanding of the ground they're operating on because they've been walking patrols in that region for three months or six months, or 11 months. There's some, there's some familiarity that comes with that. And you, you start to recognize, don't walk on the north side of that house. I can't tell you why. We can't find the IEDs there, but there's a problem on the north side of the house. Just don't go there. You learn that when you're in an area for a period of time and can observe the locals and, and walk the patrols. You don't have that luxury when you're hitting a new objective every night. And you know, not that one is easier than the other or, or, or less dangerous, but it's just a totally different challenge. And it's hard to, to, to understand the, the toll that that would take over and over again. So a lot of these folks would end up going through a little bit shorter deployments because the tempo that they're under, the stress that they're under is just so extreme. Now, to add to these objectives that these special operations forces are going to be hitting, in Afghanistan, many of these buildings and compounds is the term that's used, and I'm going to use it here, and there's a reason for that. These aren't you know, a house that we think of out in, in hill country sitting by itself with maybe a wooden fence around it. In Afghanistan, homesteads are fortresses. There's a reason for that. The country's been at war for ever, right? So... Many of these homes and where people live, their dwellings, will be a building surrounded by a wall, not a fence, but a wall. And the wall is often a foot thick or more and can raise up eight feet or more. That wall will stop bullets. 
there's occasions where bombs will go off on one side of that wall and people on the other side get up and run away. And it's a, it's a fortress. That's what units like Staff Sergeant Leroy Petries are, are assaulting when they go on these high-value target kill capture missions every night. They're assaulting fortresses. They're assaulting fortresses where there are people inside that don't want to be captured, certainly don't want to be killed, and are probably going to fight. On May 26th, well, on May 25th, the day before the mission, Petrie and his unit get this task to go after a target in Paktia province. They load the birds late at night. Or actually, they load the birds in the morning. It's going to end up being a daylight assault, and they get to the objective on May 26th, 2008. They unload the helicopters on the objective and quickly come under fire. They neutralize the target, and Petrie moves towards a compound with a couple of his guys. Now, these compounds, again, it's, when you walk into it, it, you're not entering the building. You're entering the courtyard. So remember, the compound surrounded by this one-foot or wider wall. You can't see over the top. It's, it's open, but from the ground, it's a tall enough wall that you can't see over it. So Petrie's on the ground with, with a couple of his guys. They enter the compound, and as soon as they do so, come under fire and are wounded by enemy small arms fire. They, they jump and quickly find their way to cover behind a small building, not, not necessarily a home within the compound, but a small building that provides a little bit of cover, the, the, the best place they can get. And as they're sitting there, checking their wounds, you know, figuring out how, how bad the damage is, another ranger comes and joins them. So there's three soldiers, Petrie and two of his men, sitting, on, sitting where they have some cover from where the enemy attacked inside this compound. Now, they're in kind of a tough spot they had to get to cover because the rest of the compound was open. But now they're, you know, sitting ducks makes it seem like there's nothing they can do. And it's not to that degree, but they don't have a lot of options. And they're kind of waiting for the enemy to poke their head around the corner and start shooting. That would be expected. And especially as two of the three are wounded, there's not a lot they can do. So should the enemy come around the corner and force, they're going to be in trouble. As they're keeping guard and kind of, this is all happening very, very quick. An explosion goes off, knocks the three of them to the ground. They kind of sit up and realize that was a grenade. They're lobbing grenades over the wall. Just as they notice that, Petrie sits up, looks, looks over, and sees a grenade sitting on the ground behind his two men. Without hesitation, he lunges at the grenade, picks it up, and throws it to get it away from his guys who... If he'd not done so, or if he's not going to do so, it's going to go off and it's going to kill at least his two guys, maybe him as well. Grabs the grenade, throws it, and as he does so, the grenade detonates. The grenade detonates just as it leaves his hand, severing his hand at the wrist. But he got it far enough away from his two guys that they lift. Now, not like this battle's over, right? That was just a grenade. There's still Taliban on the other side of this wall. They're not going to stop lobbing grenades. Petrie wraps his hand, puts a or wraps his hand, takes a tourniquet out, applies it to his arm to stop the bleeding. They're shortly joined by some other rangers who start to move him and the other wounded soldier um, off the battlefield for medevac. And Petrie's unit continues their assault through the objective. Um, as he is medevaced off the battlefield back to 
um, a major air base in Afghanistan and eventually to Germany for treatment. Now, Patriot survived. And because he lunged at that grenade and threw it, it saved the lives of his two fellow soldiers. For that act in 2000, he'd be awarded the Medal of Honor. Now, a cool little bonus here is Petrie is now missing a hand, which by all accounts would say he is um, able to medically retire. He'll, he'll get a disability check from the Army. He, there, there's no expectations that this guy is going to try to stay in or should st- can stay in, I guess is what I should say. But he does. He gets a prosthetic and re-enlists in the Army. He deploys again to Afghanistan, goes on, goes outside the wire, like actually conducts a mission in Afghanistan, but eventually decides maybe it's time to to move on as much as he wants to be a part of of that unit. There's the risk of if something goes wrong because of the prosthetic, is is he putting somebody else's life at risk? So he, again, you know, surprisingly here, right? He selflessly um, steps away and in 2014 leaves the service for good. But a heck of a story, a living hero that we have today that's still traveling the country, um, doing a lot of work with veterans groups, with folks that are coming back wounded, recovering from their wounds, or just struggling with the transition out of the military. He's a heck of a resource to veterans all around the country. So Staff Sergeant Leroy Petrie awarded the Medal of Honor for throwing a grenade away from his men on May 26, 2008 in Paktia, Afghanistan. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.